reading from Romans 5, uh, verses 1 to 11 this morning. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much, Caroline, for reading so beautifully, and the worship team for leading us in such a rousing time of singing, and Sam for leading us uh, in worship. Uh, for those of you who don't know, today is actually Sam's first time presiding for us. Let's give him a round of applause. Yeah, we want to see many more young men giving their lives to the Lord and giving their lives to serving Him uh, and His church. And uh, that's part of uh, what we would like to do together. Would you join me in a word of prayer as we open up God's Word today? Father, we thank you so much that this is your inerrant Word. It is without error, and more than that, it is clear. So we ask you today that your Holy Spirit would take your Word and write it upon our hearts. As we've just read, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would take your love and pour it into our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, there are a few new faces here today, and for those of you who have just joined us, love to get to know you, love to talk to you, but we've been working our way through the book of Romans, and here we are at a pivot point in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 5, verse 1 to 11. Let me just give you a quick recap of what we've covered so far so that you'll be able to follow along in today's sermon. The Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 to 17, he gives us his thesis statement for the book of Romans. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to all. Uh, for in it, he tells us, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. So he's not ashamed uh, of the gospel. It is the power of God. It's the main theme of the book of Romans. But why is he unashamed of the gospel? Why is he so confident in the gospel? Because he tells us in verse 17 that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And he tells us the righteous or the just shall live by faith. Now, if you were with us a few weeks ago, you'll know that the word righteous and the word justify are actually the same word in the original language. To be righteous is to be justified, and to be justified is to be righteous, or to be righteous, to be more accurate. And it means that you have a validated performance record that makes you worthy and acceptable. If you're applying for a job, to be justified or to be righteous means that you have all the qualifications and all the experience, not just to get the job, but to keep the job. You are righteous or you are justified for that job. You are accepted. You are worthy for that job. 
We've seen over the last few weeks as well in Romans 1.18 to 3 verse 20 that the Apostle Paul gives us some very bad news. The bad news is no matter who you are, and I know there are some non-Christian friends uh, here among us, please know that all of us are in this category. The bad news is whether you're religious or irreligious, whether you're unrighteous or self-righteous, Romans 1.18 to 3.20 tells us that we're all in the same boat. None of us has the righteousness which is required to be accepted or worthy before a holy God. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Nobody, no one in and of themselves has the righteousness that which makes them acceptable before God. None of us in and of ourselves has a validated performance record before Almighty God. And yet, in the goodness of God and in His grace, we saw in Romans 3.21 to 4.25 that God makes a way for us to have the righteousness or the justification that makes us acceptable in His eyes. We learned that that righteousness is given to us as a free gift to be received by faith in Jesus Christ. It's not by works, not the good things that you do, not by obedience to the law. It's purely received as a free gift by faith in Jesus Christ. And in Romans 4, we learned what that meant. When you have believed in Jesus Christ to be justified by faith, to receive the righteousness of God by faith, it means that you have been given a new status. You are counted as righteous. You are imputed with the righteousness of God. One day you were unrighteous, but the moment you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have received a new status, the status of righteousness, the status of justified. You are accepted. You are worthy in the eyes of God, and that is an unshakable, unchangeable status. If you're here for the first time, friends, this is available to you if you will only embrace Christ by faith for yourself. So friends, justification by faith alone and the righteous life that we receive by faith, that is essential and good news that is presented to us here in the book of Romans. But what we'll see here in Romans chapter 5 and, toward, and, and moving forward is that that is the beginning but not the end of the gospel. There is so much more. You see, did you notice that Paul says in Romans 1.17 that the righteous or the justified, the one who has received the status of righteous or justified, he will live or she will live by faith. To have the status of righteousness leads to a brand new life, a glorious life, a great life. And that is what Paul will be talking about in Romans 5 all the way to Romans 8. Now, for some of you, this sounds really strange because you're thinking to yourself, my experience of the Christian life hasn't really been as exhilarating as you say it is. It hasn't been great. In fact, I've experienced more pain and suffering in being a Christian. How can you say that this Christian life is happy and great? Well, the Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones once said this, probably overstating the case. Unhappiness in the Christian life is very often due to our failure to realize the greatness of the gospel. Unhappiness in the Christian life, Lloyd-Jones says, is very often due to our failure to realize the greatness of the gospel. So it's not that you don't believe in the gospel. You just don't realize how great the gospel is. 
And can I say to you, friends, that in Romans 5, 1 to 11, the Apostle Paul is jealous for you. He is jealous for you to know the greatness of the gospel. He is jealous for you to know the privileges and blessings that come with being justified by faith. He is jealous for you to know what it means to live the justified life. And therefore, in Romans 5, 1 to 11, he answers for us three very important questions. What do we have in the justified life? What will we have in the justified life? And finally, how do we know we have the justified life? What we have, what we will have, and how we know we have the justified life. Come with me to Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says there, Therefore, when he uses the word therefore, he means that what he's going to be saying after rides on the back of everything he has said in chapter 1 to 4. Everything he has talked about in terms of justification by faith, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have been justified by faith. We have been declared righteous in God's eyes because we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, we have peace with God. That is the first blessing of the justified life. Peace with God. Now, friends, what is this peace with God? I need to tell you, it isn't referring to feelings of peace. It isn't even referring to a state of inner calm. No, friends, it's referring to something even more beautiful and powerful. It's referring to an objective peace that we have with God through Jesus Christ. How do we know that? Well, look at Romans 5 verse 10. It says here, while we were enemies, we will reconcile to God by the death of his son. Before you believed in Jesus Christ, you were an enemy of God. But through the death of Jesus Christ, you have become a friend of God. You have been reconciled to God. And that is what it means to have peace with God. It's the opposite of war. You were at war with God. Now, because you have been justified by faith, you have peace with God. You have been reconciled to God through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. I don't know if this is your experience, friends, but do you know that when significant relationships in your life are not going well, it seems to color everything in your life with a sense of doom and dread, doesn't it? When that significant relationship isn't going well, even if you get a promotion, uh, you get a bonus, you get into school of your choice, because that relationship isn't going well, it colors everything with a shade of gray. But on the other hand, if your best relationships, the people that mean the most to you, if those are going well, in some sense, you get the courage and the ability to press on through difficulty because even if the whole world is against me, at least this person that I love is for me. And that is what I need. Well, friends, in the life that we live in this world before Almighty God, that's kind of what's happened. Our greatest relationship in all the world, our relationship with God has been broken because we've sinned against Him. And as a result of that, all of our lives have been colored with a shade of gray. Everything we do always leaves us wanting more. The greatest successes never quite give us the satisfaction that our hearts long for. The reason is our greatest, most precious relationship in all the universe, our relationship with the Son of God, with God himself, has been broken. And therefore, even the best things we do in life are always shaded with gray. Well, friends, here's the good news. That great, the greatest relationship that you will ever have, 
your relationship with God, God has made a way for that relationship to flourish. Through the death of his son, not only are you declared righteous in his eyes, you have been reconciled to him. You are at peace with God. You are no longer an enemy of God. You are a friend of God. You have been reconciled to God. And because you have reconciled to God, you have access to him. Look at verse 2. We have obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand. Now, I know Romans is very packed with theological terms, but let me try to just unpack this for you because it is very important. Because you've been reconciled to God, you have access to his grace in which you stand. Now, what is grace? Grace refers to the unmerited favor of God. And standing here means that you're not just getting a little bit of grace. You're moving from one realm to another realm. You're moving from one state to another state. You're standing in grace, and you will always stand in grace because God has transferred you to this new realm. So once you did not have access to favor, but now you have full access to God's favor. Once you were in the realm of disfavor with God, but now through faith in Jesus Christ, you who have been reconciled to God are in the realm of favor with God. And that is what it means, friends, to have peace with God, to be reconciled to God. Let that sink in for a moment, my friends. Being a Christian doesn't just mean believing a bunch of doctrines. Doctrines matter. But it means at the heart of it that you have been reconciled to the God of the universe, that you have access to him, and you have access to his unmerited favor on an ongoing basis. You are now in the realm of his favor. You are no longer in the realm of his disfavor. That is one blessing that you have in the justified life. Here's the second blessing. Look at verse 2. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, friends, when you use the word hope in the English language, it's often wishful thinking. I hope that this will happen. It means that you really want something, but you can't really be sure that you will get that something. So you hope, you hope, right? Here, when this word is used in the original language, it's different. It comes with a sense of conviction and certainty. You know for sure that you will get what you hope for. What does the Christian hope for? It says here in verse 2, the glory of God. Now, what is the glory of God? The glory of God is the expression of who God is. It's his beauty and it's his splendor. When God made us in his image and in his likeness, we shared his beauty and we shared his splendor. But the reason why there's ugliness in the world and ugliness in our hearts, there's brokenness in the world, and brokenness in our hearts is because of sin. We've rejected him. All have fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. That's why we see ugliness in our own hearts and in the world. And yet, for those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says, we have the sure and certain hope of glory. We have the sure and certain hope that God will restore his beauty and splendor in us and in the world. Later on, we'll be covering Romans 8 verse 30 in a few weeks' time. That Paul says this, Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Your destiny, child of God, 
is one of beauty and splendor. And you may not have that beauty and splendor today, but your hope that that beauty and splendor will be yours is sure and certain and unshakable. Now, as I gaze across the room, I can tell that some of you are cynical. It's too good to be true. How can you say that? How can you say that? How can you say that when I wake up with anxiety every morning? How can you say that when I battle with depression? How can you say that when my marriage feels like it's falling apart? My children are going astray. My career is going awry. How can you say these things? How can you say I'm reconciled? I have access to grace and I have the hope of glory. And all of these things are happening in my heart. Well, if you're cynical, you're not alone because Paul's original hearers would have been just as cynical as you. You see, friends, in the first century, Roman Christians were poor and persecuted. They understood what it was to suffer. So how can Paul still say the things that he says and make his case? Come with me to verse 3. Paul says in verse 3, Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. Do you see what Paul is doing here? He's not ignoring suffering. He's not saying it's not real. He's saying it's very real and it's very painful. Neither is he telling you to enjoy your suffering. It is not enjoyable. It is undesirable. And yet Paul can say, in the midst of suffering, you can rejoice. You can boast. Why is that? Well, as we see in the following verses, he can say this because he is sure and certain, and you can be sure and certain that there is a purpose in your suffering. God is doing something in your suffering. Your suffering is not senseless. God is accomplishing something in your suffering. What is he accomplishing? Look at verse 3. Suffering produces endurance. Now talk to any athlete, any person who's picking up a musical instrument or a new skill, and they will tell you it is always painful before it is fun. It is always difficult before it is easy. And that is what Paul is saying here. Your suffering produces endurance, the ability to persevere. Verse 4, endurance produces character. Now, character is a certain quality of a person. Have you ever talked to someone who's been through suffering and he's been mellowed and shaped by that suffering? You want to cling on to every word because it comes out with great wisdom and comfort. And someone who's never been through suffering, you talk to them, yeah, it could be fun, but it's kind of frivolous. There's a certain quality of a person that's produced when suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. And he goes on to say, character produces hope. It's that word hope again, the certain conviction. And verse 5, hope does not put us to shame. That can also be translated, hope will not disappoint us. You see what the Apostle Paul is saying? He's saying, your suffering does not derail your hope. In fact, your suffering actually develops your hope. It's God's way of making you more sure and more certain that you will get what you're hoping for. Now, how does this work out 
practically. Let me just say this, friends. None of us wants to go through suffering. Well, maybe one or two of you, uh, but if that's the case, please come forward later. I want to pray for you. Uh, none of us wants to go through suffering, by and large. But you know that if you've lived long enough, you will suffer. But here's the thing, friends. If you've lived long enough, you will also know that some of the most precious lessons that you've learned in life, you could only have learned in the school of suffering. I just read on the internet, there's a new book out on C.S. Lewis, and it actually covers the last 20 years of his life. It's called The Completion of C.S. Lewis. Now, we tend to think of C.S. Lewis as this erudite English scholar who's very good with language, but did you know that the last 20 years of his life was filled with disappointment and tragedy and death and declining relationships and declining health? Yet, it was in those last 20 years, in the darkest period of his life, that some of his best books were produced. It's in that period that he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, surprised by joy. When his own wife, Joy, died of cancer in 1960, Lewis wasn't a stoic. It plunged him into a place of deep despair. And as he was in that place of deep despair, he kept a diary of his despair. And that diary eventually became a book called A Grief Observed. And that book is precious to me because it helped me through a deep time of grief in my own life. Now, during that period, Lewis himself actually says that's when he learned to pray. He'd been a Christian all his life, but he did not know how to pray. It was only when he was in this place of deep despair that he learned to pray. And his thoughts on prayer were then put together in a book on prayer that was published after his death. Without suffering, God could not have used C.S. Lewis to produce some of the best work in his life. How does this work, friends, for you and for me? Suffering, friends, for the Christian should not drive us away from God, but to God. Suffering should not drive us away from the church, but to the church. And when we run to God and we see him comforting us in our suffering, but more than that, producing character in us through our suffering, it begins to dawn on us. God, you're real. God, you're wiser than I am. God, you're trustworthy. And the more we bring our suffering to God and we see his faithfulness in comforting us and in producing character in us, the more we can trust in him, the more we can be sure that we have a certain hope of glory. We can have a certain conviction and hope that beauty and splendor will be our destiny and not ugliness. And friends, some of those lessons we can only learn through the school of suffering. Having been justified by faith, you now have peace with God. You're reconciled to God. You have access to him, and you have an unshakable hope of glory, even through suffering. Now, friends, we'll come back to verse 5 to 8 later, because I think in the structure of the text, uh, that is kind of the heart or, or, or the meat of the text uh, that is actually sandwiched between 
uh, what we've just gone before and verses 9 and 10. In verses 9 and 10, Paul will tell us not just what we have now in the justified life, but what we will have in the justified life in the last day. So let me consider that first before we come back to verses 5 to 8. So what will we have in the justified life? This is what you have now, but what will you have? Did you notice in verses 9 and 10 that he uses the phrase, much more? That phrase, much more, is used in both verses 9 and 10. Now here, Paul is arguing from the greater to the lesser. If you have the greater thing, surely, or much more, you will have the lesser thing. My friends, just imagine if you were to go down to Funan Mall and you meet someone and he says to you, meet me here at the same place tomorrow morning and I will give you a hundred Singapore dollars. How many of you would believe this person? Jeremiah, good man, good man. Okay. A few of you. The rest of you, very cynical, very Singaporean. That's okay. That's all right. Okay. Now imagine with me if that same person were to give you a thousand Singapore dollars at first meeting and then he says to you, tomorrow morning, Meet me here at 8 a.m. and I'm going to give you $100. How many of you would believe him? Well, the rest of you, this is a difficult crowd, you know. Most of you would believe him because we're arguing from the greater to the lesser. He's already given you $1,000. You can be sure that he will give you the lesser thing. And that is what Paul is arguing here. You've already received the greater thing in verse 9 and 10. You will surely get the lesser thing. So what is the greatest thing that you already have? Look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, We have been justified by his blood. You've been declared righteous through the death of Jesus Christ. How about verse 10? What is the greatest thing you already have? We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Through the death of Jesus Christ, you have justification. You are righteous. You have that righteous status before God. And you have reconciliation. Do you notice it's the same two things we've been talking about from verse 1 to 4? Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You've got justification and you've got reconciliation. These are the greater thing. So here's the logic. Now that you have justification and reconciliation, which is the greater thing, much more you will have the lesser thing. What's the lesser thing? Look at verse 9. You will be saved by him from the wrath of God. And verse 10, you will be saved by his life because you have been justified and reconciled you will be saved from god's wrath by his life now verse 9 says we can be sure that we will be saved from the wrath of god if you were with us a few weeks ago you know that the fact that god is angry and wrathful is actually a very good thing it means that he will call account every sin every evil and every injustice in the world so every outrage that you feel in your heart will be dealt with fairly at the end of time. It's actually a very good thing that God is angry and wrathful. But here's the bad news. If God needs to deal with every evil and sin and injustice in the world, it means that he needs to deal with every sin and injustice in your life. And apart from Christ, friends, we will face the judgment and the wrath of God. But yet in Christ, through his death, that wrath has fallen on Jesus Christ. And therefore, with great confidence, we can know we will be saved in the final judgment. Now, verse 10 is a little bit harder to understand. What does it mean to be saved by his life? There have been many 
PhD thesis written on this verse, so I'm not going to be able to crack it completely, but let me give it a shot here. Do you notice in verse 10 that to be saved by his life is contrasted with being with the mention of the death of his son? So I think this life here refers to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You'll be saved by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, how does that work? You see, friends, Jesus didn't just die. He rose again as a historical fact. And when he rose, we know decisively that sin has been dealt with and death has been dealt with. And if we know that it, that has been dealt with, we can be confident that we will be saved from the coming judgment. So when you look at the resurrection of the Son of God, it gives you confidence that you are indeed justified, you are indeed reconciled, but that you will also be saved from the wrath to come. Let me say this, friends. If you have not believed in Jesus Christ, you have every reason to fear the coming wrath of God. But if you have believed in Jesus Christ, you have every reason to not fear the coming wrath of God. And so the same message goes out to every person here. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That is what we have in the justified life and what we will have in the justified life. But finally, let's look at verses 5 to 8. I believe verses 5 to 8 are sandwiched between what we have, verses 1 and 4, and what we will have in verses 9 and 10. And it's the heart of the passage. It tells us how we can know for sure that we have the justified life and all the blessings that come from the justified life. And the answer to the question, how, in verse 5 and verse 8, is God's love. Look at verse 5. God's love has been poured out. Verse 8, God shows his love for us. God's love is how we can be certain and sure that we have the justified life and all the blessings that come with the justified life. Now, there are two things happening here in verses 5 to 8. Number one, look at verse 5. It says here, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. There is a subjective experience of the love of God. You see, when we believe in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, God himself, takes up residence in our hearts. And one of the things that the Holy Spirit does is to pour God's love into our hearts. Friends, have you ever been told from the Holy Scriptures that God's love is meant to be felt on your heart? Jonathan Edwards says, it's not enough to know that honey is sweet. You need to taste the sweetness of that honey. It's not enough just to know that God loves you. You need to feel that love on your hearts. The 17th century Puritan John Owen speaks of how the Holy Spirit gives a sweet and plentiful evidence and persuasion of the love of God to us. It is such, he says, that the soul is taken delighted and satiated with the love of God. The love of God is not just meant to be known, my friends. It's meant to be felt in your hearts. Let me give you a more contemporary example. John Stott, British evangelical leader, Anglican, not given to emotionalism at all. 
He says this, what the Holy Spirit does is to make us deeply and refreshingly aware that God loves us. Start goes on to say, talk about a vivid, heightened, intense, even overwhelming assurance of God's presence and love. Friends, God's love is not just meant to be known in your mind. It's meant to be felt on your heart. It's meant to be experienced in a subjective way. Have you, friends, felt the love of God on your heart? Well, of course you have. If you're a Christian, you would have. Now, the question is, how does the Holy Spirit pour his love into our hearts? Well, the simple answer is any way he decides. He's God. He's the Holy Spirit. The wind blows wherever it pleases. But at the same time, God in his grace has given certain gifts to the church to help us be in a place where God the Holy Spirit works. We cannot determine where the wind blows, but we can put up our sails so that when the wind blows, we will catch the wind. And the sails that God has given to us, Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 88, is the ordinary means of grace. The ordinary things that God gives to the church as a means, as a way that he shows us, not just in our minds, but in our hearts, that he loves us and that he is for us. What are the ordinary means of grace? Well, one of them is the word of God. Have you experienced it, Christian? Of course you have. Reading the Word of God, hearing a sermon, and suddenly being overwhelmed by a certainty of God's love. What is happening there? God is pouring out His love into your heart by the Holy Spirit. What's another means of grace? Prayer. Have you experienced it, Christian? Of course you have. In your personal times of prayer, and maybe gathered together corporately with the body of Christ, suddenly... You sense upon your heart, God is real, and he loves me. This is real. Of course you've experienced that. A third means of grace are the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, both giving yourself to those things by faith in the gospel and observing those things. That, too, is a way that you lift up the sails so that the Holy Spirit can blow a fresh wind of his love into your hearts. This became very personal to me and Cindy uh, in Melbourne, Australia, a number of years ago. As, as some of you know, I mean, you've heard this story, but I'm going to retell it because uh, quite a new face, a lot of new faces here. Uh, we went to Australia a few years ago with two children in tow. Uh, Carissa was, I think, eight or ten months, and Caitlin was about three. Uh, full of excitement. I'm going to finish my theological study. She's going to do a medical fellowship. We were full of faith and you know, ready to just study and, 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 and do everything. Four months in, we were terribly, terribly discouraged. Uh, Cindy reminded me one of the reasons we were discouraged is because, you know, uh, when we went to uh, Australia, uh, Carissa was diagnosed with epilepsy. And so she had to take her medicine three times a day. And it was when we were in Australia that she began to fight her medicine. She wouldn't take it. Uh, so it was very difficult, you know, to, to have a child with epilepsy, uh, to have another one who was about three years old, full-time study and, and full-time work. So four months in, we were incredibly discouraged, and we thought very seriously of packing up our bags 
and moving back to Singapore without theological education and without finishing the medical fellowship. We found ourselves very discouraged, very dejected on a Sunday morning at the church that we were attending. The sermon was so-so. But then they had Holy Communion. And we're not from this tradition, so it was new to us. But they made us come forward. They served us the bread and the wine. And they said to us personally, this is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Jesus shed for your sins. I had never heard this before. May he be the one who keeps you to the very end. We took the Lord's Supper and we went back to our seats. And we felt the love of God fill our hearts with strength. I looked at Cindy and I said, we didn't pakat, we didn't corroborate. Right? I said, did you feel that? She said, yes, I did. And that gave us the strength to press on and persevere to the very end because we knew that God's love was real. Now, the bread and the wine are just bread and wine. The water of baptism is just water. But we come by faith in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and we receive these elements by faith. It is like we are lifting up a sail for the Holy Spirit to blow a fresh wind into our hearts. God's love, verse 5, has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Christian, have you felt the love of God on your hearts? If you haven't, let me quote another Puritan, Thomas Goodwin. It's going to sound a bit irreverent, but remind you, I remind you it's from the lips of a Puritan, so it must be correct. Thomas Goodwin says, sue him for it. If you've not felt it on your heart, sue God for it. Pursue him until you sense his love on your heart. Don't give up. Lift up the sails. Cry out for it, yearn for it, and at the right time, perhaps God would be so pleased as to pour out his love onto your heart through the Holy Spirit. The love of God is just meant to be known, friends. It's meant to be felt and experienced in your hearts. But there's more, friends. Not only does God give us a subjective experience of his love by the work of his Holy Spirit, there is an objective historical event that has happened that when we look back to, we will know for sure that God loves us. Come with me to verses 6 to 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. You see, friends, there's the subjective work of the Holy Spirit pouring out God's love into our hearts. But there's the objective work of the Son dying on the cross for our sins. It is real. It is objective. It is historical. You can look back to it. And there are a few things that the apostle highlights for us. Notice who Jesus died for. He didn't die for the strong. He didn't die for the godly. He didn't die for the good. 
And if you feel strong and godly and good, well, let's look who, at who he died for. He died for the weak. He died for the ungodly. He died for the sinner. And when did he die for the ungodly, the sinner, and the wicked and weak? While they were still sinners. God doesn't say, hey, you clean up your life, you come to me, and I'll die for you, or I'll send my son to die for you. Clean up your life first. No, friends. God comes to the weak. God comes to the ungodly. God comes to the sinner and says to you, while you were yet a sinner, my son gave his life for you. This is the objective work of the Son. And as we gaze at that, we can know for sure that God really does love us. Do you feel weak, my friends? Do you feel ungodly and wicked? You're a sinner? Well, friends, you are precisely the kind of person that God sent His Son for. And this is how we know that we have the justified life and all the blessings of the justified life. There is a subjective outpouring of God's love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. There is an objective work of the Son. It's a historical event that we can look back to. And as we look at those things, we can be assured deep in our hearts and in our lives that God does love us, that we are justified by faith, we are reconciled, and all the blessings of the justified life uh, ours. Friends, maybe you feel weak, ungodly and sinful and worthy of God's love this morning. Or maybe you're overwhelmed with anxiety and pain and suffering. And you're wondering how God could turn it around. Well, friends, as we saw in this passage, God turned around the suffering of his very own son to bring salvation to the world. And when you see that, you can know for sure that he will give you beauty for ashes if you come to him. So friends, whether for the very first time or for the millionth time, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the blessings of the justified life will be yours today. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you on this day uh, as we remember the Reformation. How many centuries ago you blew a fresh wind of your spirit and you helped the church to regain clarity with regard to how we stand righteous before you. Not by works, not by the law, but by faith in your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the great privilege of being recipients of that beautiful and pure gospel. And we pray that that pure and beautiful gospel will continue to change our hearts. Come, Lord, we pray, and pour out the love that we have experienced at Calvary into our hearts this morning. Come and draw us near to you again, that we might have assurance that we are yours and will be yours for all eternity. We also want to pray for our Christmas outreach. We thank you for all the hands that have been actively at work putting this outreach together. 
more than anything else, Father, we pray that we will have a yearning to encounter you afresh at Christmas and also to have our friends and family and their children come to encounter you and know the truth of justification by faith alone and reconciliation with God at that time. So, Father, we pray you bless the work of our hands. You bring many to come, not just to hear the gospel, but to respond to the call of Jesus and to believe for the very first time. Bless us, Father, we pray. And Father, as a church, we come before you and we say, Father, we have many plans, many desires, many longings for what the church should be and can be. But our greatest longing and our greatest desire is that you be real to us, that your love be poured out, not just on us as individuals, but together as a church. Gospel love, anchored in the objective and unchanging fact of Jesus' death and resurrection and yet made real for us today. So pour out your love on us, Lord. Make us a healthy church, a prayerful church, an outreach-oriented church, a safe, life-giving community, a learning church. Give us a diaconate, Lord, where we will meet the practical needs of those in our church and outside, pursue the purity of our church and unity of our church, and do works of mercy. Give us a pipeline of leaders, Father, we pray. Send us on short-term missions and enable us, Lord, by your grace, to plant two churches in the near future. We ask all of these things, not because we are great. No, Lord, we are weak. Not because we are godly. No, Lord, we are ungodly. Not because we are sinless. No, Lord, we were sinners. But because Christ has shown us his love on the cross for our sins. We are justified, reconciled, and we have full access to you today. In Jesus' name we pray.